Welcome again to another episode of the SEM Podcast. I'm Zach Hewlett, joined again by my co-host Jack Bryce. And today we are joined from the Great North. Is it the Great White North, Alaska? <laughs> by Brant Peacock. Brant, t- tell us exactly where you're calling from tonight. Uh, I'm calling from uh, Kodiak, Alaska. Uh, I'm stationed here with the U.S. Coast Guard at Base Kodiak, Alaska. Oh, man. Love it. Well, good. Well, thanks for coming on and spending some time with us. We're excited to catch up and uh, reminisce a little bit. You know, just to reiterate the the format, we'll talk pre-mission and the run-up to getting your call and then going to the MTC, then jump the mission, talk life since Scotland, and then we'll go back. So. The floor is yours, Brant. Go ahead. We're excited to hear from you. Sounds great. And uh, you know that I'm a talker, so you can cut me off whenever you <laughs> whenever you want to cut me off. So You got um, it, buddy. Yeah, so ro- rolling up to my mission, I'm from Castledale, Utah, uh, central eastern Utah, kind of out in the boonies. And uh, just like normal, graduated high school and always knew that I would serve a mission, uh, had great faithful parents. And, uh, I went that summer, uh, to go work in Logan. My sister was, uh, her husband was at Utah state and she was working some telemarketer job. And I thought it'd be good for me to get out of the house, experience life a little bit and, uh, get a job, uh, in a place where I didn't know anybody except for my sister. So I went up and got a job in Logan and, uh, I was doing surveys, which, uh, I found I was okay at because I could do accents. And so wherever we were calling, I would, I would just mimic the accents. I remember us calling, doing corn surveys. And so I, I, you know, we, I changed my, I changed my accent to match theirs. Or I remember doing uh, shopping surveys in New York and changing my, changing my tune to try to get surveys, but the job came to an end and that was a terrible job anyways. Nobody likes a telemarketer. Right. (laughs) And uh, so in that summer I was, I was looking, I, I didn't want to run back home. You know, I, I was out there to, to try to learn and kind of go on this adventure. And so I went and got a temp job and the temp jobs in Logan were all at cheese factories. Uh, so I went yeah. for, I remember I was doing four tens and uh, my only job was to uh, stack bricks of cheese for 10 hours a day. Oh, it man. was, it was not a great, was not a great job. And uh, it would come off the line. I was also the only white person on the factory floor, <laughs> and uh, and they wouldn't they wouldn't let me eat lunch with them. That's <laughs> the first time I'd ever seen discrimination, and uh, they wouldn't let me eat lunch with them. They didn't want me to be there, and so I would stack until lunch, and then I would go to my car and I would study the Book of Mormon in preparation for my mission. Then I'd go back for another five hours and stack bricks of cheese until they came to me one day and said, "We don't have any more work for you." I went back home and started up on a farm and uh, I worked on farm until it was time to time to go. While I was working in Logan, I got my call. My parents uh, drove to Salt Lake and I came down from Logan. We met at my sister's house. And uh, I remember that obviously emotional moment, opening my call and seeing Scotland and uh, being overcome with emotion and uh, began to cry and just knew that I knew that it was right. I knew that that's where I was supposed to go. And, and I was excited. I was elated. And so I went to work on the farm for a few months. Uh, and that was an experience. 
And uh, while I was there on that farm, um, there was a kid in school with me who had always struggled, um, struggled spiritually, struggled just kind of in life. He didn't, he wasn't that active. And uh, we, we got to know each other very well, working wheel lines together. And, uh, and as we did, he, he made the decision that he also wanted to serve a mission. And so I felt like in that lead up, as I was trying to do that as well, I had good experiences and good conversations with a, a fellow classmate of mine that, uh, that resulted in him going on a mission. His name was Weston Brinkroff. He's a great guy. And so then yeah. just like you all I shipped out to the, I shipped out to the MTC. I was in uh, elder King's group. You've had him on, uh, in Garrett Smith's group, a bunch of other guys, um, got to the MTC in England and, uh, it was good. I, but I immediately was, uh, stunned at some different, different things. Uh, the MTC president wasn't that nice. <laughs> Maybe I can't say that on here. I'm just being honest. He wasn't that. You, you, can, say it every, you can say it every you want. Cool. I was cleaning the bathroom one day. I remember I had drawn the lot to clean the bathrooms. And so I was cleaning the bathrooms. I'm scrubbing the toilet. And I remember whistling a hymn. And I felt so happy in my heart, happy to be on a mission. And I, I was whistling a hymn, not even thinking about it. And he came up and berated me that I had driven away the spirit by my whistling. And I thought, I don't know who this guy is. <laughs> but this is not my guy. And everybody's, oh, well, he's very rich airline. Oh, he's very wealthy. He's comparing watches with some other rich kid that was there with us. And I thought, this is just not my, I'm from coal country in middle of nowhere, Utah. But uh, I'll, I'll whistle if I dang well, please, while I scrub a toilet. So that's, oh, that's my own attitude right off the bat. But uh I love the MTC. I loved, uh, I loved that our MTC sent us out to, to tract in England. And I, I felt that was a really cool experience instead of just learning about it and showing up in your mission, kind of an intermediate period where we got to go out and try to share the gospel with people that were getting inundated with it every week from the mm -hmm. MTC mission. Um, it was a great experience. It's a great yeah. experience in the MTC. Yeah. Remind, remind us timeline when that was, when did you enter the MTC? Sure. Came in October of 2005. Yep. Okay. October 2000. And, uh, no, so it was great. Jumped a train, just like you jumped on a train, went up to Edinburgh, got checked into our bed and breakfast, uh, went in and met with the Vreens. And then, um, our, there was a bunch of all the potential trainers that were there. And, um, we were all kind of paired up kind of, I think president Vreens wanted to see who would, who would kind of be drawn to each other. We went out and we tracked it that night in Edinburgh. And um, I was assigned to Elder Osmond. And uh, and we went out and we tracked it and came back and got our assignments. And they said, Elder Osmond's going to be your trainer. You're going to go to Inverness. And so, uh, and so, so the mission began. I love it. All right, before we get too thick into that, let's jump into life after the mission real quick and catch us up on the last... 15, 16, 17 years. Whew, all right. So um, came home from my mission, uh, started studying at the College of Eastern Utah, uh, which is now um, USU Eastern, got bought out by USU. And uh, it's there in price. So started going there and uh, started studying communications. And while I was doing that, I found a psychology professor who was just awesome. And so I took all of his psychology classes just because they were fun. He was a really great guy. 
and uh, just trying to figure out what it was I was supposed to do with my life, like you do when you come home and start a new adventure. And um, while I was there, um, my my friend, um, my friend Weston Brinkerhoff that I just told you about, who I'd worked on the farm with, he had gotten home from his mission as well. And he called me up and he said, dude, have you read this book, Lone Survivor, about Navy SEALs? I was like, yes, I've read it twice. He's like, we need to become Navy SEALs. Hmm. And I was like, that sounds freaking awesome, except for one problem. I know that I'm not a Navy SEAL. And those of you who know me and served a mission with me are probably like, that's not a freaking Navy SEAL. I definitely am not. <laughs> and so I said to a man, you know, I, I don't think I can make SEAL team. And he said, I just did the workout. I know you can swim. Uh, you know, let's, let's work out together. I just made the cut for the first, the first tier of SEAL training come and let's be seals together. I said, I don't know, man. I don't know. He said, well, can I send my, my recruiter really wants to meet you. I said, your recruiter would love to meet my grandma. If her ASVAB score was high enough, right? It's a freaking military recruiter. He says, well, he really wants to meet you. I said, well, if you want to, if, if he wants to drive all the way from Salt Lake down to price to talk to some random kid, he, he can have at it. I, I don't care if he comes or not. Uh, now having been in the Navy, I realized that guy just got a government vehicle on a day off to like drive around the state. I take that, I take that deal every day of work. <laughs> so this, uh, this Navy recruiter shows up, Navy recruiter shows up at my school and he says, Hey, you know, he gives me the great Navy speech, which is you can travel the world, meet new and exotic people and kill them. That's the great, that's a great Navy speech, right? <laughs> and uh, so I sit here and I listen to this guy and he's kind of droning on and he looks at me and he stops kind of suddenly and he said, are you a Mormon? He said it real disgustedly. And I thought, you're in Utah, man. We're all Mormons. Yeah, he said, I'm not, I'm a Catholic. And I thought, okay, good for you. You know, what do you say to that? And he just kind of stared at me and he said, I have the distinct feeling you're supposed to be a chaplain. And he said, but I don't deal with chaplains. I can't recruit them. They're officers. I'm an enlisted recruiter. I know nothing about them. Here's my card. Don't call me. I don't really know anything about it. And he left. Wow. And uh, I was kind of taken back. While I had been on my mission, my mom had sent me a, an article from the, um, oh, heck. Reader's Digest. I'm like old people magazine. Reader's Digest that was about <laughs> military chaplains. And I thought, do we even have chaplains in our church? And um, it turns out at that time we had five in the Navy, five Navy chaplains across the, from our church. And so I thought, you know, I had remembered back to my mom sending me that. And um, about the same time, a little bit later, my grandma was dying in the hospital at Utah Valley there in Provo. And a chaplain had come to see her. And, uh, Chaplain started to uh, talk with her and brought her a lot of comfort kind of in her last dying days. And so all of a sudden, this idea of chaplaincy keeps coming up in really weird kind of uh, spiritual ways. And uh, so I began thinking about it and began to pray about it. And uh, I had a sacred experience where I felt God wanted me to do that, to pursue being a chaplain. I told my parents, this will mean that I'll probably never be back in Utah very often in my life. It's not really a lot of Navy bases on the Great Salt Lake. <laughs> and uh, they said, you need to do what you need to do what God's calling you to do. And so 
I got really excited and I called church headquarters, as you do. <laughs> I called military church military relations. I said, Brother Clausen, you'll never believe it. I've had a revelation. I'm supposed to be a military chaplain. He said, well, good for you. Eight people call me a day with revelations. He said, first off, are you, are, are you married? I said, no, I'm not. He said, strike one. Okay. He said, do you have a bachelor's degree? I said, no. He said, strike two. He said, and if you don't have a bachelor's, you certainly don't have a master's degree. Strike three, you're out. Call me when you got a master's degree and a wife. It's like, wow. Whoa. Hey, I got some, I got some work to do. So I felt like, all right, well, I'm supposed to be a chaplain. So I started, I, I kept studying, but coming out of College of Eastern Utah, I was broke. I had scholarships, but I'm not from a rich family. I was broke. And so I recruited for the College of Eastern Utah. They offered me to come and recruit with them for for a, a semester and they would pay me well that would get me on my feet to get me through my next years of school so that I could get to my university. And I thought it was a good good opportunity to see the different schools around Utah and meet with their recruiters. So I'd, I'd hear all their pitches. I'd know, you know where I was supposed to go. And so as I worked with these recruiters, it was awesome. That's when I would come hang out with you yeah, and, you know, kick around there. And, <laughs> and I remember um, I wanted to go to the University of Utah. I want to go to the University of Utah, one, because me and Hewlett sang about it all the time on our missions. That's and when you're from Utah, I just didn't, you know, in my, in my hometown, I think BYU would accept like two kids out of my graduating class. And I thought that was pretty snotty. And so <laughs> I was ready to go to the University of Utah. I listened to their pitch. Weber State came to me while we were on the road recruiting and said, hey, you're pretty funny. Why don't you come to Weber State and we'll give you full tuition, full ride, full housing, full food. I was like, oh, gosh, oh, I'd probably go to Weber State. These guys are super nice to me. And um, and a kid named Aaron Coombs from BYU said, why don't you come take a tour of BYU? And I said, I don't want to. And he said, come tour BYU. <laughs> and I said, I know what's down there. I said, I'll go tour BYU. But when we do it, I want a golf cart. And I want to count how many kids are wearing blue polos and khakis. That's what this adventure is about. <laughs> So we went down to BYU, driving around, and I'm just counting, hitting khakis, kidding khakis. You know, I'm just cracking all the jokes about BYU. And uh, I remember we went over to the Joseph uh, Joseph F. Smith building. And as we kind of went in there, it's it's a building that's in kind of a U-shape in a Spanish style. And I went in there, and there's a fountain there. And in the middle of that fountain is granite from Salt Lake Valley. And the fountain is bubbling forth, obviously, symbolically. And I remember feeling the spirit. And, um, and that was nice, but I was going to go to the university of Utah. <laughs> so I went back, I went back to my desk at, at college of Eastern Utah and had all my stuff ready. And, uh, I mean, this is weeks later. I haven't even thought about it. And all of a sudden I get an impression apply to BYU. And I thought, Lord, I'll do a lot of things, but I can't do this. <laughs> the spirit said again, apply to BYU. And I thought, oh boy. All my sisters have gone to the, the University of Utah. My man Hewlett's at the University of Utah. <laughs> I, I thought, okay, well, I'll apply to BYU. Sure. What's the deadline? So I looked up the deadline. It was that day at four o'clock. Uh, my bishop was a half hour away and uh, I called him and I said, hey, I think I'm supposed to apply, but you got to come interview me in the next half hour. So he drove over, he interviewed me. I searched all over town to try to find my stake president, a member of my stake presidency, couldn't find one. And I thought, well, there it is. It's a sign. 
I went back to my office and I sat down and, I, and my boss, who is a spiritual man, I said, well, I tried. And he said, Brant, if you're going to do something, then make it not meant to be on the Lord's part and not on your part. Go find the member of the state presidency. He works at the hospital. So I walked around this hospital asking people for him until I walked into a meeting where he was. And uh, he came out, did the interview. So I finally got that. I'm rushing back to my office. I look at the paperwork and there's three 500 word essays I've got to write. And I thought, oh, this is terrible. So the first one said something like, why do you want to come to BYU? I wrote, I don't. That's it. I don't want. I said, I don't want to come to BYU. I feel like I'm supposed to be a chaplain. I was prompted to apply. Next question. (laughs) Why would be a good fit for BYU? I wrote something similar. I feel like I'm supposed to pursue military chaplaincy. Next question. I wrote two lines on each essay. Oh, my gosh. I sent it in. And I thought, University of Utah, here we come. In the mail, this, I, got my, I got my acceptance letters to both on the same day. And oh, I knew. Okay. I'm convinced that somebody at BYU had read all those essays that every kid had spent time on and finally got to mine and was like, finally. <laughs> <laughs> I, I knew that I knew that God had paved my way into BYU that I couldn't even I even trying to not get a picked up, I, I did. And so I knew where I was supposed to go. And so I ate my humble pie and uh moved up to Provo and had nowhere to live, just went in and found an apartment on the, the wall of the Wilk and moved in with some weird dudes that I'd never met <laughs> and uh started really pursuing my degree. Well, I went in to say, hey, I'm studying communications. I've got now my associates, and my associates is communications heavy. BYU said, we don't have a communications program. I was like, well, that's great. I said, well, I took a lot of psychology classes. I know chaplains do a lot of like psychology stuff with people. I took all the psychology classes at College of Eastern Utah. So they looked at my transcripts, and they said, oh, not only did you take all those psychology classes, but your professor is a PhD from BYU. We know him. We'll accept all of those credits for your higher levels right now. It's like, wow. Knocked off a complete semester uh, of, of my schooling for me. Knocked that semester off. And uh, they said, but here's the thing. When you graduate, when you're ready to graduate, you'll be short 12 credits. You need to go play racquetball or something. You need to have a whole semester where there's just where you have these credits. I said, okay, got it. So I went to my first semester at BYU. It was hard. Um, I did okay. And then that summer, my bishop's wife from down in, down in Castledale, um, she called me up and said, I'd like to meet with you. I said, sure. She had always been very super nice to us. And so when I was down visiting my parents, I stopped in to see her. And she said to me, hey, Brant, I've been praying a lot. And um, you're supposed to go do the BYU Jer- Jerusalem Center program. And I said, well, that's really cool. I got $75 in my bank account and I'm washing windows to stay alive and feed myself. Um, That program's for rich kids. And she said, no, I don't think you understand. As I was praying, the Lord told me that I will send you there. And she cut me a check for $20,000. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Still get emotionally choked up about it because I'm like, I I didn't deserve that kind of kindness from somebody. And uh, she said, you're supposed to go take your friend here. I said, well, we still have to apply to the program. She said, the Lord's already told me you'll get in. So we applied and we got in just as she said we would. 
and she paid our way. And I knew that when I went to BYU Jerusalem, I was going to be the best student. And I was going to study the living daylights out of all of the, the classes were incredible. My professors were awesome. Um, Terry Muelstein, who has his own podcast, probably a lot of people listen to Frank Judd, Jeff Chadwick, just great scholars. And um, so I went to BYU Jerusalem. I studied hard. Um, I loved it. I, I loved my time there. And, uh, and I told those guys, my professors, I wanted to be a chaplain. Um, I came home from BYU. I, I met a girl there and had dated a little bit. Uh, you know, it's kind of under the radar dating at BYU Jerusalem thing overt, but overt. They're all trying to get you married there anyways. And, uh, dated her and it turns out she wasn't a very nice girl. And, uh, I, I came home and, and I felt like, all right, I, I followed the plan. I've done what I'm supposed to do. But in order to make it into the BYU chaplain program, the BYU chaplain program is a master's program at BYU that a lot of people don't know about. Uh, but it, at the time, it was only taking three students every other year. Wow. And so I had one year before I could apply to that program or I would miss it for two years. And so I got down on my knees and I said, God, I've tried to do everything you've wanted me to do. And I felt you guide me. I need a wife. I can do the education, but I'm funny looking and I need a wife. <laughs> and I need your. <laughs> and. Uh, and. Uh, three days later, Alexis, my wife, called me up. Alexis had written me my whole mission in Scotland. When I came home, she dumped me for another guy. And. Uh, Three days after that prayer, she called me up and she said, hey, I'm at BYU. She'd gone on a mission to Spain. She'd come home. She said, do you want to take a, I just calling. When she, it's funny. When she called me, it came up in my phone as do not answer. Because <laughs> 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 I was so mad from coming to years now. You know, it's been years since that had happened, but I was still angry about it. And she said, I just wanted to see if you wanted to take a dance class. And I said, no, dancing's stupid. Why would I want to do that? <laughs> and because I'm a straightforward man, I said, why are you really calling me? She said, oh, I just wanted to dance. I said, that's crap. I've had way too much. Hit. Why are you really calling me? She said, no, that's it. I said, well, if you want to come over and talk, you, you know, you're more than welcome. My friends are watching the game. She came over and we began to talk and it was clear that our lives had changed. I had grown up significantly through my experiences and she had grown up through serving a mission and uh, things were right. And uh, we dated for three months in pure BYU fashion. I'd known her. She's from my hometown. I'd known her my whole life. And six months later, we were married. And uh, great blessing. So I then went to, um, I went to apply to the BYU chaplain program and uh, went through some rigorous applications uh, and some interviews with the BYU folks. And uh, there was all sorts of people in there that had way more experience, way lots of, I'd never served in the military. I'd never been around the military. And, uh, I got my acceptance letter. I was chosen as one of three, uh, to be in the program for those years. I was so excited. So I showed up to class and the guys leading the program were two retired army colonel chaplains. Uh, so they'd been colonels for a while and they were pretty hardcore. And I remember showing up one of my first days and one of them, who he and I never got along. He's a, he's a beautiful man. We just didn't, didn't jive with each other. But he said, I just want you to know you weren't our choice. And I thought, wow, that's awesome. Nothing like starting a degree program with 
you're not our choice. Jeez. The first guy that the first elected was Mark DeLuca. Uh, he was uh, an Arab linguist who had fought uh, his way across uh, Iraq in Mosul uh, in heavy fighting and had used his skills as an Arab linguist to track down 44 terrorists and capture them with his men and uh, was awarded the Bronze Star. And uh, brilliant, brilliant man. The next guy they chose was Jeremy Brown, who's currently, I believe, the one of the head chaplains at Primary Children's Hospital. And he had served in Afghanistan, where he uh, was in finance and carrying around backpacks full of money uh, while getting shot at. And and for his efforts in Afghanistan, was awarded the Bronze Star. And then there was me. <laughs> Some oh random Utah. And so he said, I said, curiously, well, I, I see why you chose them. So who's, if, if, I, if I wasn't your choice, whose choice was I? And he said, you were the department's choice. And it became apparent that my professors at BYU Jerusalem had gone into their bosses and said, if those military guys get a say, this is our say, we want Brant Peacock. And uh, I guess why I tell you that is not because I was special, but because I look back to one day sitting at a desk where God said, apply to BYU. And as a result, everything in my life, I can look back to that one in seemingly insignificant day that I followed the prompting of the Spirit, and it changed the course of my entire life of where God had directed me. And, uh, and I, I felt that that was, I can see, I could see the hand of God work throughout my life to put me in those places as I tried to follow, although very imperfectly as, as you know me. And so, uh, so I went through the BYU program. I graduated with my master's of religious studies with a specialty in military chaplaincy a couple of years later. And then uh, applied to the Navy and was accepted into the Navy, commissioned, and then sent to Newport, Rhode Island for basic officer school training. And then uh, I reported later on, that was during my master's program. When I graduated, I reported to Fort Jackson, South Carolina uh, to attend Navy chaplain school. Um, before I did that, I went to church headquarters and uh, I had been prior to that during my time at BYU, I was interviewed by uh, General Oaks, who was Elder Oaks at the time, uh, Robert C. Oaks. And uh, and then when I made my way in, I was set apart uh, as a military chaplain at church headquarters. And uh, I was smiled getting to see Frank Clausen, who had told me that I'd struck out three times after years of working, you know, finally get there and um, shipped out to San Diego was told, hey, you know, you're going to uh, gonna get to go to San Diego on a ship, the USS Chancellorsville, a guided missile cruiser. It's every, every boy's dream to be on a billion-dollar warship. And, uh, and they said, oh, and by the way, did they tell you that it's moving to Japan just after you get there? And uh, Alexis was pregnant with uh, twins, and so we, we shipped off to Japan, and... Uh, and we had our babies. I, I sent Alexis over there. And then when I got over there, she had had to move to Okinawa, where the Naval Hospital was, clear down south of Japan, um, to have our babies. And I was sailing around the world. And my, my captain said, I don't think I can get you to the birth of your kids. So imagine my wife on a foreign island, wow. you know, giving birth to twins. And um, 
once again, God intervened and he said, I might be able to get you off in Singapore, but before we ever got to Singapore, the ship broke hard. <laughs> Jeez. We're going to have to pull back into Japan. And the captain looked at me and he said, really chaps? And I said, God knows who I am, sir. And uh, I got to get to my babies. And he said, yeah, you do get down there. So I was able to make it to the birth of my kids. I was there for with them for a week. I flew Alexis all the way back up to Yokosuka, Japan, up by Tokyo. Uh, we got her settled in. I got there at eight o'clock at night and I deployed on the ship again at five the next morning back to sea. I spent, I spent 210 days of that year at sea out, out with the, with the Navy in the South China Sea. And, uh, wow, that's incredible. So, yeah. So I had crazy times at sea. And then, uh, my next tour, I went to, uh, I could go Navy stories for hours. We don't have time, but I, uh, my next tour, I got called to Camp Pendleton to serve with the Marine Corps. And, uh, I was a Marine Corps infantry chaplain for two and a half years, uh, where I deployed to that war torn country of Australia because somebody's got to do it. <laughs> Everybody else going to Afghanistan and Iraq. I went to Australia so, <laughs> trying to keep got, trying to keep got STDs. I failed as a chaplain, but, uh, but, uh, Try to take care of my men and uh, had a great deployment in Australia and then uh, came back. And since I had served with the Navy and then I had served with the Marine Corps, I wanted to hit the trifecta. And so the next tour, I asked for a Coast Guard tour uh, so that I could serve with the U.S. Coast Guard and landed a sweet gig in Kodiak, Alaska, at the largest Coast Guard base in the nation. And uh, now I jump on helicopters and fly around the Arctic with folks. And the other day when... You called me and said, hey, can you do this? I was like, I got to go to the bearing. Got to fly a helicopter with a biologist looking for walruses, dead walruses up the bearing straight. I was 25 miles off the coast of Russia. <laughs> I was like, wow. So, get to do some cool stuff as a chaplain. And, and so now my family and I, we have, I have my wife, like I said, we have four kids. And uh, we're, we're here in Kodiak and, and in another year. Well, in a, it, probably this month or next month, I'll get a call from the Navy detailer telling me where my next assignment, uh, wherever God wants us to, to fly off to next. So that's. How old are your kids now? Uh, my daughter's nine and then twin boys that are six about to turn seven and then a little three-year-old boy. Yeah. So I saw a recent picture of you guys and it's a good looking punch, man. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. It's a good, it's a good thing. The the Navy is, the Navy's an interesting animal, but being a chaplain, I tell everybody it's like being a fake bishop without any authority. <laughs> I do a lot of marriage counseling, do a lot of suicide prevention stuff. And uh, mostly uh, I'm a hundred percent confidential. I don't follow state's laws. I follow federal laws. And so most of my, most of my life is just trying to sit in people, sit in people's lives with their pain and try to help them navigate those dark days of their life. It's been very rewarding. It's been very challenging. It's been, uh, been a great journey. Yeah. I was surprised to find out that all the chaplains are set apart, uh, by general authority. It's kind of a unique tie in to everything. Yeah. I, I don't know if they've changed, but when we were set apart, we were set apart as non proselyting missionaries for the duration of my career. And so, my mission from our mission in Scotland has continued. I just get to do it with a wife and kids <laughs> and, uh, and I don't have to proselyte anybody. I just try to help them and then support them in their own faiths. So. It's really cool. 
That's that's just perfectly you. It's just perfectly you, Brent. I love it. All right, brother. Go back to Scotland. Take us to Inverness with Elder Osmond and run through Scotland. As you know, this is there's no format to it. Just sure go through it as you'd like and share your experiences with companions and favorite people. Yeah, I listened to Elder Osmond's and he's like, oh, and by the way, I trained Brant Peacock in somewhere. I can't remember. And I was like, well, for me, it was very important to me because it's my first area. And what a great guy he is. And uh, and what a great trainer he was. And I uh, learned a lot from him. Um, Inverness was like my hometown. And it still to this day is like my hometown. I love Inverness. I love the ward there. Um, while I was there, I met maybe one of the most important figures of my mission, who was Bert, uh, Bert Little. He'd been baptized by some great missionaries, Elder Asaria Du, and uh, and some other guys that uh, they were there before I was ever in the mission. But uh, great guys, I baptized Bert, and uh, Bert taught me a lot. Bert struggled in his life uh, ever since he was baptized. He struggled with alcohol, um, but Bert came to church, and Bert held a calling, and he was the ward mission leader. And Bert showed up, and he took care of us, and we took care of him in a lot of in a lot of respects. But what Bert taught me more than anything was that living the gospel of Jesus Christ didn't, you didn't have to be perfect and you didn't have to pretend to be perfect, that he had his struggles and he'd had them long before he joined the church. And that as he strove to do what was right, and as he tried to do his best, um, he kept coming. He didn't give up and he just kept doing what he's supposed to do. And he, uh, he called me all my mission which was against the rules, but uh, he had called me once. I said, Bert, we can't talk. It's against the mission rules. So he called up President Brains and called him a mother heifer straight to his face and told him, he's drunk, he told <laughs> President Brains, called President Brains, and he said, if you won't let me talk to Peacock, I'll call you all the time. I'll call you every time I, you know, President Brains said, you can call me. <laughs> so Bert and I talked my whole mission. He was very special to me. And, um, and so, and, and all the members of Inverness Ward, so many good people there that I still keep in contact with and love. I then moved to uh, Beath. I got called down to Beath. Um, where do bad sisters go when they die? They go down to Beath where they don't baptize. I think I still have that CD. That's a good mission thing on here. I still have that CD of all those guys years before <laughs> me that wrote all those songs. I think I still, we should play it on here. But uh, I went down, went down to Beath and. Uh, and Beef was a, a refiner's fire for me. Uh, the branch had its sense closed and the building is shut down and laying there with nobody in it. They had lied about the numbers to get a building. Um, that was pretty well known. And the branch was just super small. And I was there with a companion who I loved, but he did not want to be on a mission. He called President Rings all the time and requested to go home. And that was really difficult. And to come off of a companion like Elder Osmond to a companion who definitely did not want to be there, but was a great, great guy, but didn't want to be there. It was a real difficult time. And uh, I, just when I thought I'd been there for three months, I thought, finally, whew, time, to, time to get out of Beath. Uh, I stayed there and I stayed in Beath for six months. And uh, it was really difficult. And God sent great people during that time to me. You know, there was uh, Jared Lineker, who was my district leader. Uh, there was some of those goofy guys like Cotton Betridge, who was uh, pretty dang funny, dude. There, there was people there that uh, 
that uh, that made it worthwhile. And uh, then I got Danny Wilkinson as my companion, who is from Liverpool. And Danny and I clicked. And uh, but the work was really hard. And I remember in that branch, just like many of you, I think I I played the piano. I would play the piano every week. I would I would talk in church. And I would give the priesthood lesson and sometimes a Sunday school lesson. Sometimes I'd be doing all of those parts. And uh, it was exhausting. And uh, at the, towards, towards the end of my time there, I remember knocking doors. And uh, it had just been awful day and gloomy. And I said, I'll knock one more door. And uh, I knocked. I, know, I still know the number. Number one, Laidside Court, Kilburnie. And uh, I knocked this door. And this guy opened up and he had the biggest smile on his face. And he said, come in. And I thought, are you kidding me? I don't know if I've been in a door in months. He said, come on in here. So he went on in and this man was full of life. So full of life and so kind and so genuine. He played the piano. We sang Scottish songs together. He he lifted my spirit in a way that when we came out of there, I turned to Elder Wilkinson and I said, we should knock again. I don't know if he's real. I honestly, and I, I'm dead serious. I know that sounds corny, but I honestly thought, I don't know if this is, if this is a real person. I wonder if God sent an angel to lift us because after six months of beef, I'm about ready to die. And, um, he was a real guy. His name was Jim Gilmore. And I went back to Jim Gilmore's house often. And, um, Jim Gilmore and I have now had a relationship where we have talked almost every, every month for the last 15 years. He never joined the church. He always had the missionaries come over. He's a, he's a devout Catholic. Um, he had worked with, uh, with members of our church in his time. And as the years trickled on, it comes out that uh, Jim was uh, a higher-ranking admiral in the British Navy. <laughs> oh my gosh. He never, he never talked about it. He never said anything. But uh, Jim and I have had a beautiful relationship. I've gone back and stayed with them before. And... Um, I was recently, I just went back in, um, I've been back four times. Um, I went back just this year. I needed a little chaplain break. I went back to stay with Jim for a little bit. And uh, he took me to the horse races in air. And he said, come on, use your Mormon powers to pick the winning horse. So I, I, picked, a, I, I picked a horse that was, uh, it was called Classy Al. I was just thinking of Anchorman, like, stay classy, Al. <laughs> so I picked this horse called Classic. Yeah. It was going off at 17 to 1 odds. It won and paid out those dudes I was with a ton of money. And they, they thought, yeah, he's, done it. he's done it again. He showed up here. He's got he's brought his magic. So great time with you. That was a very, I think that was something that my mission taught me as well, that that uh there are people that never join the church that are that are special to us. And that uh I know that Jim will accept the gospel someday. And he always asks me, every time we talk, he says, have you put my name in the book? And he means, have you, have you put my name in the temple this month? Have you called and put my name in the temple? And he says, I know it helps me. And so I continue mm. to put Jim's in the temple and he continues to do his gym thing. And it's had a great relationship for all these years. So I moved from Beef and uh, I went to Dundee. And uh, in Dundee, I had um, Elder Lukes, who was from Germany as a companion. He was a lot of fun, great guy. And uh, I trained Elder um, Elder uh, Jesse Smith. 
and uh, I was only with him for six weeks. And then uh, I loved Dundee. It was it was great. The wards were good. Um, and then I got a call saying it's time to go to Aberdeen and uh, meet your new companion, Elder Hewlett. And uh, so I showed up to Aberdeen and uh, loved every second of my time in Aberdeen. I mean, what a what a place and what a people. I I love that ward more than I can say, and I love the missionaries we served with there. Um, there's a lot of lot of learning and growth, um, but uh, I loved our time together there. I love the people of Aberdeen. So I don't know. You want to chime in? I just keep talking. So. No, you know, I it is interesting when I. Uh... You know, thinking back to it, President Vreens had gone home, and so President Fredrickson had said, your new companion is Elder Peacock. And I hadn't even heard your name to that point in the mission, and I started asking around, you know, anybody know Elder Peacock? And I said, and most of the people that did know you, they said, oh, you've got a good one. Like, you have no idea. He's, he's an incredible. And you came in, and you were really a breath of fresh air for me. Um, I enjoyed serving with Eller Pattenden, um, Stuart Pattenden, and uh, we got along all right. But it wasn't a, a match made in heaven. And and interestingly enough, I you know looking back to it, uh, Christian Lucas and Chris Harlow were the other missionaries in our mission or in the the Aberdeen uh, ward at the time. And so I was the only American. So I was just inundated with the Brits and telling me. You know, I couldn't say one word or the other, and <laughs> I'd do it just to, just to tick Pattenden off. I'm sure, I know he hated that, but uh, yeah, it was a breath of fresh air. And honestly, more than anything, Peacock, you, you really helped me realize that work and fun can, can coincide with one another. And I felt like I was much more robotic the, the beginning of my mission to maybe to a fault. And uh, so I really was able to open up and enjoy the latter part of my mission with you and because you killed me off. But, uh, man, that that three months of time is some of the fondest times that I can recall on my mission. So thank you. Yeah, and I've always struggled. I love I love the naturalness of the gospel. I, I've never been afraid of of speaking about the gospel or talking about it or. Um, where other people find, you know, I've even heard people say, you know, oh, I, I lived in, I lived here for two years. I'm like, I didn't live there. I served a mission for the Church of Jesus Christ, right? Like, I've never been ashamed to to speak out about. But I've always found it interesting um, that um, I think the mission and the military and these other things have been a, a balancing act for me because the gospel is very natural to me, and I try to be as genuine as possible in who I am and how I live. And um, sometimes the rigidity of things uh, can come off, at least for my personality, like I'm not, uh, like I'm, like I'm too goofy, or that I'm not in it to win it, or that I'm not, I don't know, something. And um, sometimes I felt like I'm too dodgy for the hardcore LDS people, and not dodgy enough for the people of the military that I'm with. And I find myself in this kind of no man's land of my life, which is that. You know, I've been known to say a swear or two and I've been known to, you know, I, 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 and, and I think the military chaplaincy has been a good fit for me where there is fun and adventure 
um, with religion and with spirituality, but not consumed by the maybe robotic or judgmentalness of it sometimes. But that's always been a, that's, I, I struggle with that sometimes. So. Yeah, no, I completely understand that. And it's, it's one of those things that, you know, when you're around the church a lot, you know, growing up in Utah, it's just one of those cultural things that has become a norm. And I think that's why my wife and I have been more drawn to live outside of the state just so that we can get a little bit of a breath of fresh air from being swallowed by those who are constantly inundating us with expectations of who I'm supposed to be and how I'm supposed to be. And, you know, cause I think that's why you and I got along so well, Peacock is because I, I'm definitely not caught cut from a clean cloth. You know, I, I, I definitely got down and dirty and, I've said a few swear words in my lifetime and I can guarantee that there'll be, there's more to come. Um, but you know, it's just one of those things, right. That you have to understand where the gospel suits you best. Right. As, as they've taught us in recent years with the, you know, the come follow me manuals and preach my gospel as a tool that the gospel is very personal and it's an opportunity to make it your own. And it's not a one size fits all type of thing. I, I'm sorry. It's, it is a one size fits all thing, but you don't have to be a certain size to fit if that makes more sense. And so, yeah. And, yeah. You know, it just, it, that was my biggest thing. Like I remember thinking to myself in that last three months with you of my mission, I was like, okay, let's go out on a high note. Let's work hard and do all the things we did. But some of my favorite memories were, you know, the, the movie, the movie night, uh, uh, sorry, that was with Patton. Um, I'm thinking of the, the sing song night that we did the Disney like musical thing and the yodeling peacock skip dance to (laughs) the seven dwarfs and, you know, kiss the girl with little mermaid. I mean, those were fun times that, you know, if I had been in a different part of my mission or a, a different mindset i probably wouldn't have enjoyed those as much but uh those were really good experiences and it really helped us become more uh human humane i guess with the ward like we were less the robotic missionaries and we were more part of the ward family and i think that's why aberdeen became such a great home away from home for us yeah, I, I I couldn't agree more. I, I loved I, I loved being there. And I think it's because of a natural love for the people. Mm-hmm. If you I mean people say they love people, but people can feel whether you really love them or whether you're saying you love them because you're supposed to. And when you have a real natural love for those people, uh like I said, I went back to Scotland recently and I stopped by Aberdeen and they were having uh they were having a ward night that was uh it was based on the countries of their missions and they all had booths. And uh, I walked in the door and I wore an America shirt just so that I could represent America for their, <laughs> for their night. I walked in and um, what I loved was it wasn't like elation to see me. As soon as I walked in, Bishop Goldie and some of those Goldies were like, all right, Peacock. Like, like I'd never left. Like they'd seen me last week. Hey, Peacock's right. back. Like just, just as natural, I fell in, we had a great night, but it was because I still, and a lot of those people I still talk to. And so you have these relationships. It's like, Hey, you know, 
People will call me from Aberdeen and say, when are you coming home? And it does, it feels like home because of the love that we have for those, for those folks there and such good people. I want to touch back on what you were saying. I think one of those great things that my mission taught me is that like, it is not that, I, I, I want to put this right. Repentance can be difficult. And yet the mission taught me that, you know, as we teach these people, we ask them to confess and forsake, and then we baptize them. You know, what does it take to overcome some of these sins where sometimes in the church, some of these sins seem so daunting? Oh, they're drinking. And like I said with Bert, you know, I watched Bert continually struggle, but try. But I also saw people that are like, oh, okay, well, I'll stop. And then God was like, cool, you're forgiven. Mm-hmm. Like what we make into these mountains that, that it really, I, as a chaplain, I remember a, a young Marine came to see me and his dad had just passed away and his dad was everything to him. And he sat in the chair and he sat there crying and the spirit told me, give him a blessing, which is weird. If you've ever served around Marines, like I'm not gonna lay my hands on a kid's head. It's a weird thing in, in that kind of setting. The spirit said again, ask him if he wants a blessing. So I said to him, Hey, in our church, we do these blessings where I lay my hands on your head. And it's a blessing of comfort. And these kind of times he said, sure, do it. So I laid my hands on this kid's head. And as I blessed him, I felt the presence of his father in the room. An incredibly deeply spiritual experience. And I know he could feel him in the room. And I could feel an, the overwhelming love that the Savior had for this young Marine. And when we finished, he looked up at me with tear-filled eyes. And I looked and he had the biggest lip of chew in his mouth I've ever seen. This big old dip of chew. And he sat there and cried and spit his dip in the cup. And said, I could feel him here. And I said, so could I. Now, obviously, that brain's not under covenant, but it taught me something. My mission and my work in the chaplaincy continue to teach me that God really loves his children and that he will meet them where they're at to help them to progress, not try to meet them where they, you know, at some superior level and say, you know, he comes to us where we're at and tries to progress us, not, not the other way around. And I love that about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I love that about him that. And ministering is the same thing. Build relationships, meet people where they're at. And without those weird expectations or all those other things, meet people where they're at and love them where they're at and watch the growth that comes from that. Or place a bunch of weird expectations on people and watch them flounder. And mm-hmm. and so I felt like the mission in Scotland helped me see that in people and has blessed my ministry as a chaplain be able to remember that so that that I have real faith that uh, I have a great love for the people I serve and that, that repentance is, is very possible, much, much more possible and much more willing than many people want it, want to make it out to be. If that Agreed. makes sense. Agreed. 100%. So, yeah. Had a great time in Aberdeen. Um, I think maybe one of the most formative experiences in Aberdeen for me was uh, after you left. Um, I've been on my mission now for a long time. And um, I've rarely taught, and I definitely haven't like taught anybody that's been baptized. And um, I was getting discouraged. You were gone, which is a which was a huge blow to me because we had such a wonderful relationship. And um, I went and asked Jeremy Lamro, an expat who teaches at BYU Idaho, if he'd give me a blessing. He laid his hands on my head and he told me that if I would do specific things, I've never had a blessing like that. If I would do specific things that I would see a man come into the church who would receive the gospel and remain faithful the, the rest of his life. That's a pretty gutsy blessing. So mm-hmm. I set out to try to do things that Jeremy Lamro had instructed me through the spirit to do. And I was imperfect at him, but I tried. And we met Raymond Murray. And Raymond Murray, 
uh, you would probably met him when you were there at some point. He had, he had showed up, but yep. he wasn't, he wasn't ready. Uh, and his father-in-law had said, don't teach him. He's not ready yet. I'll tell you when he's ready. And, uh, I know a lot of missionaries that would say, no, we, you know, they're ready. No, we just left him alone. We said hi right. to him. We played volleyball with him. But one day we got a call from his father-in-law that said, Raymond's ready to be taught. And it was me and Elder McCabe. And uh, I'd had Elder O'Brien in there with me too uh, before that. But uh, by this time, it's Elder McCabe. Mm -hmm. And we went in and taught Raymond. And only time in my mission where I taught somebody the first lesson. And he was ready to receive the gospel and agreed to be baptized. And um, we had Duncan, his father-in-law, baptize him. And that has, that started a lifelong relationship with Raymond. Um, Raymond uh, Raymond later, uh, his wife, who was the actual member, uh, did not want to live the gospel at all. Once Raymond found the truth, he was not going to let it go. And he came to her and said, I'm not, uh, I'm not giving up the gospel. And she said, well, then I'm done with you. And they divorced. And... Wow. Um, and Raymond said, I know it was right. I wasn't going to, to leave the gospel. And um, he found another uh, young woman who's from down in Barhead, uh, Rebecca McKechnie, which some of you missionaries will know, the McKechnie family down there. And Raymond married Rebecca. And um, I flew back over and was the best man at their wedding. And then uh, they were sealed in the temple. And I was the only person to represent Raymond's side of the family to come and to go through the temple there with Raymond at that time and uh, beautiful experience. And so Raymond and I have had such a great friendship. He's only a year older than I am. And uh, we've been friends our whole time since the mission. And this last time when I went back, I called him and said, would you go, would you go on a Scottish road trip with me for two weeks? And he said, absolutely. So I flew in and Raymond and I traveled the whole mission and stopped in, Stopped and saw the folks in Inverness. We had a ward party in Inverness and got to see all of our friends. And then we went to Aberdeen and Raymond had been baptized in Aberdeen. So they all knew him. So he had great homecoming and stayed with the wares. And then uh, we just traveled all over Scotland, staying in Airbnbs together. And it was uh, <laughs> wow. Raymond Murray's one of the greatest blessings of my life. And um, I've never, <laughs> I've never uh, been ordained a high priest, but he has. And he served in Bishop Bricks and is currently serving as the elder quorum in the Pollock Ward. And I, uh, I know that Jeremy Lamro was inspired with the spirit when he said that a man would come to the gospel. And uh, I love Raymond Murray with all my heart and uh, always will. And then when I got married, Raymond came over with his kilt and Raymond came to my wedding as well. And uh, been a great blessing to me as a, as a friend and a brother. So that was, uh, you know, of all the things that happened on my mission. Um, Raymond was worth it. And, um, and, uh, that was awesome. So I finished up in Aberdeen and then, uh, there's some crazy wild stuff that went down. I won't cover it here. Probably doesn't need to be said here, but some crazy wild stuff went down and the mission president came to me and he said, Hey, um, you know, you've gone through some of these difficult experiences as a zone leader kind of what do you want to do next? And I said, I want to go home back to Inverness. I want to go back to Bert and take care of Bert. And uh, he said, okay. And so I went back to Inverness. I had uh, great companions. Um, I had Colin Kilgore, who was in the flat with me. He wasn't my companion, but a great blessing to me at the time. And uh, I finished out my mission in Inverness, taking care of Bert. And um, 
I'll never forget the day that I left Bert at the train station and I knew that I would not see Bert again. And, um, and, uh, the next year at college, I had been speaking with Bert. We talked regularly. Um, but I got a call from Julie Williams saying that Bert had died and that, uh, the missionaries had found him. Sorry, I'm all emotional during this, but, um, but it was the missionaries who always took care of Bert and it was the missionaries who had found him that, that knew he had, he had passed away. And, um, that was my first time going back to Scotland. It's 2009. And, uh, I always told Bert that I would fly back before I left. He gave me his kilt jacket. He had a fancy kilt jacket. He'd been a Highland dancer. He gave me his kilt jacket for my wedding. And I gave him mine, which was like a 50 pound ugly kilt jacket. And, uh, and I told him I would, if, that if he passed away, I'd come back and, and bury him. And so as promised, I went back and um, I had no money. And um, a scholarship at my college came in for the, for just about the exact amount of a ticket to Scotland with a note saying, Peacock can use this scholarship for whatever he wants. <laughs> and I flew home and I buried Bert and um, I dedicated his grave. And uh, I still think to this day and when I got married that I was wearing Bert's kilt jacket and my kilt jacket's buried on with Bert <laughs> in, back in Scotland. And so... Uh, it was a great blessing to me, Bert was and always will be. I went and did his temple work for him and uh, finished his endowment and uh, just uh, always feel like he's still with me. So that's uh, <laughs> that's my kind of finish to my mission there and then came home and you've heard my story. So I've had a wonderful life. I've been blessed more than I deserve for who I am and for my faults. But I, I know that Jesus Christ lives. I know that, that by following the Spirit, we truly can be led and guided and directed. And that a relationship with the Scottish people. Um, I love the Scots. Um, I serve the United States Navy and everybody, every time I salute somebody, I say America. Um, but I told my wife, I think I say America so much to remind myself that, uh, that I'm an American because I just as soon uh, <laughs> go back to uh, buy a little croft and maybe get a Highland County mission. Spend, I've, spent, I've spent my whole career listening to people's problems. I'd love to just sit with the cow <laughs> in the Highland, eat a, eat a steak pie. And spend the remainder of my life in Inverness with my with my Ain folk, um, but uh, I know that we all feel feel those feelings towards those people, and I'm just grateful that I feel very blessed that I, I feel like God led me to find a people that were like me, that were somewhat dodgy, that would say funny things, um, but were also deeply spiritual. And uh, like I said, maybe I've never felt so much at home sometimes in other church settings or in military settings, but I've always felt home with the Scottish saints and their bluntness and their, their loving kindness. And I think God was able to show me throughout my life that here's a people that I think are more like me. And I've used Scotland as a refuge when I felt difficult things in my life to go back and recenter myself with the people that I feel are mine. So. Wow. 
thank you very much for sharing that. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, amen. I'm getting choked up because I know your love. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. There wasn't a day that went by after I went home that I didn't long to be in all of Aberdeen with Brant Peacock. I mean, you probably don't remember this, but the day I got home, I told you I, I'll call you. And I called you in the morning. It was probably like 2 a.m. In, in Utah. And I was like, I need to call Peacock. And so I called you. And you were in the midst of like trying to get out the door. I think you had the APs in your flat and something. I was, But I just, I had to hear your voice. And uh, it was so good to come back in August and see you in the mission for a little bit before you were going home. But uh, I don't know. We just had so many good times together. I was just thinking when you're talking about Inver Inverness, how we uh, we took a little drive up t up uh, to Loch Ness, and we pulled over on some small side of the road, and we went down and and we drank the water, <laughs> and we we both said to each other, uh, "This is going to be the reason that if we live to be 200 years old, it's because we drank the magic water of Loch Ness." <laughs> Do you remember that? I do remember. I think probably just lucky we didn't get dysentery. The spirit probably, God probably <laughs> protected the missionaries on that one. <laughs> oh man, it probably wasn't the smartest thing, but man, it was one of the best pure drinks of water I'd ever had. My it gosh. I, I often think of Robert Burns in his poem, my home is in the highlands. My home is not here. My home is in the highlands of chasing the deer. And, uh, as I've told you, between in my mission, I spent eight months in Aberdeen, and I spent five months in Inverness. And so I really was in northern Scotland. I never served in the Glasgow stake, and I never served in the Edinburgh stake. And uh, I'm pretty proud of that. <laughs> <laughs> You're one of, those one of those rare ones, right? One of those rare ones. So, but, uh, but yeah, just a wonderful wonderful memories and and the difficult challenges i really feel like on my mission i came to learn that the lord would help take care of me even when i felt alone and um you know i have mixed emotions i understand uh i understand different age different time different people but i look back on my mission i think one of the greatest blessings of my life was that i couldn't call home and that i couldn't and that the lag time between letters was so long because I feel like it really forced me to to get on my knees. It it made it that I couldn't call mom and dad and ask them how to handle the situation, but that I had to do it. And I felt many times that that the Savior had my back. That I that I could learn that He would fight my battles for me and that He would help me. And um, I think that maybe that's a hallmark of our generation. I don't know, but I'm incredibly grateful to have served when I served for that purpose because it helped me 
in the situations, the situations I, I remember calling my dad is a wonderful man. I love him more than anything. Um, but calling my dad and saying, Hey dad, you know, I just had this thing happen to me in the Navy and have him say, yeah, I think I kind of know what that's like. No, you don't. <laughs> Jeez. No, the people that know what it's like are the 200 people that are here with me on this warship. And that's, that's the only people I have nobody to turn to where I can relate what's going on or gain advice from, from people. And so I find myself on my knees saying, I don't know how to do this. Please help me. Please guide me. And my mission taught me that because couldn't always, couldn't turn and, and just ask mom and dad. That was a, that's been a great blessing for me in my life in, in what I do now. So I love that aspect of our mission. So, so who were your last um, companions in Inverness? You know, my last companions were Elder Bath Taylor. And uh, okay. he was from, uh, he was from down Bristol way. I had him for six weeks. <laughs> He's a funny character. And, uh, and then I had elder uh, Harrison and, um, and he was so quiet that uh, I think I drove him nuts. And uh, I couldn't, he was so quiet. I had to go look his name up in my journal today to remember what his last name was because he's so quiet. <laughs> Terrible. Terrible. Remember everybody else, but, uh, but elder Harrison was so quiet. <laughs> he made a ghostly impression on you. But, uh, but yeah, I, uh, yeah, I think there are people on the podcast. I think there are people that I would want to hear about their lives. People that I love that, uh, I don't know whether they ever think about me, but I think of people like, uh, McKay Lynch. I sure would love mm -hmm. to hear from a McKay and, uh, and, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of who else. I'd like to hear from Michael Chambers. Michael Chambers was our district leader in Aberdeen. He was a great guy. Uh, but um, he's a future. And I, he's a future guest. He'll be on. Good. I'd like to hear from Jared Lineker. And uh, the man that I really want to hear from, because when I was back in Scotland, everybody told me he's the bishop. And I thought, you got to be freaking kidding me, is my man, Dan Conway. I want to hear Conway come on this podcast so bad. Uh, Dan Conway was so good to me on my mission and such a breath of fresh air for me and Beef. Um, but always just so funny. And um, I just can imagine, I would love to have Dan Conway as my bishop. Um, so I'd like to hear him on here um, just, just to hear his life and experiences. But We talked to know. Dan just, uh, what was it, Thursday last week? So yeah. you'll you'll hear his, his stories and his antics. Um, Great. The other person that we talked to earlier that shared a story about you was uh doug poland oh and, dougie poland <laughs> yeah he shared an experience where he said he was in beef with you and you were driving in a car and you drove down one of those t dead ends and a bunch of neds had put like wheelie bins and like blocked the road can you confirm this that did happen, yes. But I can't remember what happened in the story. Because I remember driving down that road. Finish it for me. So he he relayed that he said he got they got to the end. They blocked off the road. And I guess they had bats and sticks and things. And like were coming toward you. And Doug said, I'm sorry, Peacock. And he just put it in drive and drove through the wheelie bins to get away. Yes, yes. 
<laughs> beef was rough. Beef was a. It was funny because it's the most pastoral scene, like pastoral scene you've ever seen. And 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 yet in beef, I almost got killed multiple times. I was walking down the road one time, and these Neds came out, and they were drunker than a skunk. One had just gotten out of prison. They had a bottle of vodka, and they threw a bottle of vodka at my feet. It went all over my shoes. And now there's a glass bottle. I thought, I'm dead. I'm getting bottled. They're yelling how they're going to kill us. They're right up in our faces. And all of a sudden, the phone rang. Their phone. And my companion, Elder Evans, who was way more street savvy than I ever had been, said, oh, do you want me to get that for you? And they handed it to him. And it was this guy's girlfriend screaming at this guy. And Evans said, no, no, he's fine. Talk this girl off the ledge. And next thing you know, they're kissing us. <laughs> and then they wanted us to drink with them over by this pavilion. And so we walked with them towards the pavilion. And then Evan said, now we can run. And then we took <laughs> off running. And then screamed and chased us. And I thought that was crazy. So I said, let's go take a break. Let's go have lunch and come back later. And when we come back, let's go to the opposite side of town. We had a car. He said, that sounds great. We went and had lunch. Went to the opposite side of town in the afternoon, and we went up a dead end street, parked the car, and started chapping doors. And we chapped a door, and it opens, and it's all of those same people. Yeah. I don't know how that. And all of a sudden, all of these people run out. It's them! Get them! <laughs> and they come hauling out of this house. We hauled up the street, but it's a dead end road. We can't get to our car. And we did some move out of Shaun of the Dead where we jumped through people's backyards over stone walls and then under this bramble bush to get our car and get out of there. And I said, I'm done for the day. I'm sorry. I'm done. I'm done. Chapter <laughs> oh That's really done. That, oh was, that was that day in Kilburnie. I was like, my goodness. Like, There was what? another time in Dundee. The only, the only time I've ever impersonated a federal agent. I was coming across a park in Dundee. I bet 16 Neds. It was dark and 16 Neds start coming out of the woodworks, walking right towards me and my companion. And Luke starts getting scared. I said, I said, tuck your badge. I tucked my badge inside my pocket. I pulled out my wallet and I said, all right, boys, it's a CID. Let's keep it moving. They said, oh, all right, no problems, me. They walked around. I was like, I can't believe that worked. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I was like, I was like, there you go. I'm person, a federal agent of the CID. But I was like, I don't know what else to do. I thought we we're going to die. So. It's because you had such a spot-on Scottish accent, you could throw it at anybody and didn't matter. What was funny is that when I got when I went back to visit Scotland, I'm like looking over my shoulders for these Neds, right? And then I realized I'm not in a suit and tie. Nobody cares. People are coming up; they're super friendly. I was like, "Oh, it's a whole different country when you're not wearing a patch." <laughs> didn't have to look over my shoulder. I'm in a crowd with all these Neds, and I thought, "Oh, they're going to get me." And then I thought, "No, no, they're not. They're just fine." <laughs> That's so funny. So. Well, and my experience, I, I shared, I, I had some people that said stuff to us, but they would never approach me. And obviously, I, I'm sure it was my size, you know, because I don't remember ever having any issues when you and I were together with, with them. I mean, we did have a car, and but we went about and didn't have any issues. Um, but I don't know. It's It's always funny to hear other missionaries' experiences with regards to that, because... I wasn't there. I'd never had that experience. So it's always very enlightening. Sorry to we say that. We can't all be tall, dark, and handsome. We can't all be tall, oh, dark, geez, and handsome. Oh, jeez Louise. But I, yeah, I, I just think that's, 
you know, we all have those different experiences, but no, I never had any problems when I was with you. I was looking at our tea book. I don't know if I've heard people mention tea books on here, but I got, a, I, my, I looked at my tea book today in preparation for this. And there's a picture of you and I, and I could do a good Scottish accent. And so at Aberdeen, they had me play Santa Claus. If you've got <laughs> me and Hugh standing next to each other, who's going to play Santa Claus? And they said, it can't be Hewlett. It's got to be a Scottish accent. The kids think he's got a Scottish accent. So I have a picture of Hewlett towering over me and me in full Santa garb standing there waiting for the kids to come up so that I could play Santa Claus with a Scottish accent. I was cracking. If you, I'll have to send this picture to you. You towered over me and me standing there dressed as Santa. Brilliant. I, com- Brilliant. I completely forgot about that. Oh my gosh. Oh, that's too funny. You, 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 you were an impressive Santa. I can tell you that. Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. You know, the, the loons and the Queens didn't know a fit, you know, they didn't know it at all. No, they're funny. No, it's a, yeah, it's, it's, it's good. You go back there and there's, it's just like our hometowns. Some things change, but mostly those towns don't ever change. They haven't changed in hundreds of years and I hope they never do. And uh, Aberdeen's the same Aberdeen that it always was. And uh, just good, just good, solid, just good, solid people. I was surprised to go back to the Aberdeen ward and there's just a million children. The Goldies have reproduced. The Johnny Kennedy's back reproduced. And so all of a sudden, what was like a dying ward with like Tyson and all these old folks is now this thriving ward with a million kids. It made my heart so to see the church well and alive and growing through that next generation of folks there that, that we kind of came up with. And while I was there, uh, Hannah Sim was there. I went and met with Dougie and Ann Sim, which was amazing. In the way oh, yeah. Started. And Hannah Sim came up and she said, hey, look, I got somebody on the phone. And it was Joanne from Dundee. And she said, here, Joanne wants to talk to you. And just got to see all those folks. <laughs> oh, man. So just incredible. Yeah. So. Amazing, amazing people. All right. I know that you only served a portion of your mission with President and Sister Vreens, but what's your favorite memories of them? Oh. Um, I had a difficult experience that I want to share. And uh, because I think it merits something that President Vreens taught me. Um, President Vreens at one point had had an issue with, that. I think there was a, I'll just be honest. It was a district sleepover (laughs) and I had thought it was authorized. It turns out it was not authorized. He had authorized it for a different district, but our district leader hadn't asked the same. And so it wasn't authorized and our district leader was going home. So he wasn't going to take the blame for it. Um, And I remember president brings called each of us up. We all had to get on the phone with him. And I remember picking up the phone. I've been in beef now for months and months. I've gone through a lot of difficult experiences. And President Vreens picked up the phone and he said, Elder Peacock, I expect this from some people, but not from you. You are worthless. And um, boy, that hurt. And I went home and I was angry. I remember going back to the flat and I threw my books and I was angry. And my companion said to me, who, who I thought at the time was quite, he was, he later got sent home. He said, well, if you're so mad at him, why don't you call him up? And I thought, I can't call him up. And he said, sure you can. So I called up President Breens and I said, President Breens, you've lied. And he said, tell me. And I said, 
when we're on the phone yesterday, you told me that I was worthless. I said, I have sat here and labored and labored and done everything you wanted me to do. And I didn't think I was in the wrong. And you called up and called me worthless. And I want you to know, I don't care what you think. I am not worthless. And he said, Elder Peacock, I apologize with all my heart. I was wrong to say that. And I knew you'd call. And um, I love that story, not because of, not because President Vreens, I'm sure just like, I can't imagine if I was a mission president, what I would have called us. (laughs) (laughs) But, but, but in doing so, he taught me that he was a very imposing figure. You know that from his hugs, from all his interviews, from all that. So very imposing figure. But when I called him up and said, you know, this is what's on my heart. He was quick to apologize. He was quick to make it right. He was quick to love. And he was quick to, to make it right with me. And um, that, taught me, that taught me a lot. In my life, I've been too quick to, to judge or say something that maybe I didn't mean. And uh, he taught me real quickly. He could have said, nope, I'm the mission president. I'm, uh, you know, I've run modern display for years and I know what I'm doing. And he could have done that. And he said, Elder Peacock, you're so right. I'm, I am so sorry. And that taught me the true humility of what a great leader he is and was. That um, that he could apologize for his mistakes and that he wasn't infallible, but also that he was loving and really caring. And um, I, I take that as a great lesson of leadership from President Freens. I love that. It's a great story. So, All right. And I love Sister Freens has been great to me ever since we got home. I've been to their home just like a lot of you have. And Sister Freens has always been so welcoming. and and. Um, and I've watched Sister Breen's uh, m- multiple times when I've been back take care of President Breen as he, in his kind of declining old age, and uh, what a what a hero she is for being able to take care of him um, as he's gone through his later later struggles in his age. She's a she's an incredible person. Yes, she is one hundred percent. Well, we really have loved every minute. I know I have. I'm speaking for Jack. Absolutely. Um, you've mentioned a few names. Is there any other names that come to mind that people you'd like to to hear from potentially in future episodes? Um, I'd like to hear, I'm trying to think of who else that I, you know who I love that I'd love to hear? Donovan Oliver. Donovan Oliver was such a great support to me. He's really hard to get a hold of. He's a quiet man by nature anyways, but a giant of a man. And I'd, I'd like to hear from Donovan Oliver. He's just a, a, he was such a good, and is, I'm sure. But uh, I find it hard to keep in touch with him. And I'd love to hear from him if he's around. Yeah, I'm just checking my notes. Um, I've reached out to him, but I haven't heard back from him. So I'll keep trying. Sounds good. <clears throat> well, Brant, thank you again for taking time and coming on to reflect. And I mean, the spirit's been here and the love has been here and that's what this is all about. So um, thank you for contributing and continuing to share your love of Scotland. Um, one quick memory that I'm going to leave it on and I- I'll say it because I was super impressed with you is I remember at one mission reunion, 
they asked like the Scots to come up and sing a song. If you remember this. And, and you went up with all the Scots to sing a Scottish song because <laughs> you, you had the song well tuned in your heart and you sang it as if you'd lived in Scotland your whole life. And, uh, and then I think you, you read a, a poem with your Scottish accent for everybody. And I was just like, man, this guy is it, Honestly, you were cut from the cloth of Scotland and placed in Castledale, Utah, and had to find your way back. And I'm glad you did. But uh, I could tell the love of Scotland in everything that you did in all my uh, interactions with you, both in the mission and since. So thanks for being so great. Oh, thanks so much. Love you guys. And uh, thanks for thanks for doing this and giving us the opportunity and and uh, just been awesome. Thanks, Brent. We love you. We will certainly talk to you more soon. All right. Great. Take care. See Thanks, you. Brent. Yeah. Bye.